Aftermath is brought to you by Art of Problem Solving, where we develop educational resources for motivated students, including textbooks, an online school, in-person learning centers, and a variety of online applications. We build the tools we wish we had when we were students. Welcome to Aftermath, where we talk to fascinating people in and around the STEM world about where they've been, where they are now, and how their passion for math helped them get there. I'm your host, Richard Russick. For today's episode, I have the great pleasure of speaking with Po Shen Lo, Associate Professor of Mathematics at Carnegie Mellon University, Founder CEO of XP, and Team Leader of the United States International Math Olympiad Team. Poe and I have a lot in common. We both got our start in math with math counts studied at Princeton University, worked at the investment firm D.E. Shaw, and we both spend a lot of our time helping to get kids excited about math. If you want to know what it's like teaching at a top university, coaching the U.S. International Math Olympiad team to its third victory in the last four years, or founding your own successful company to share your passion, you're going to enjoy today's episode. You'll also learn why it's important to make time for unstructured learning, what video games can teach educators about motivation, and why a background in improv comedy can help you become a better ambassador for mathematics. I've had the great fortune to dine with Poe at several events, most recently the MAA's USA Math Olympiads Awards Ceremony, where Poe explained that his average speed is around, I think it was 20 miles an hour. That includes his time sleeping, though to be fair, that sleeping time often comes on trains and planes. So let's see if we can keep up with him for the next hour. Welcome to the show, Poe. Oh my, thank you very much, Richard. It's a real pleasure to be here to talk to you. Uh, this is, this is going to be great fun. Um, before we get to all your careers, I'd like to talk a little bit about your education. So we have some common roots there, math counts in the AMC. How did you get started? Uh, so I was born in the United States, and I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin. I attended public schools, actually, throughout my entire, uh, entire K-12. And I should say that in elementary school, I didn't necessarily know that I was particularly good at mathematics. It just happened to be something that I think I liked. Um, I had the fortune of having uh, learned it a little bit early uh, from my mother. My mother was wow. uh, a math teacher previously in Singapore, in fact. But uh, it was only in middle school that I really discovered exactly how exciting and challenging math was. And that was thanks to the program Math Counts and thanks to a volunteer coach who was the father of an eighth grade uh, eighth grader who was in my school and he wanted his daughter to have the chance to have an interesting team to work with oh. and he just volunteered every sunday to coach us in math uh, and to bring together a group of some about 10 really interesting people uh okay. to do hard problems who was that who was that coach his name was terry gearhart okay and he was an engineer in a local company oh outstanding that's that's wonderful how did you learn was that was that like your first I guess your mom taught you a lot before you even walked in that room. Yeah, so I, I had the opportunity to learn a lot of the basics and the fundamentals from my mother. And of course, actually, by going to a public school in Wisconsin, uh, the way they dealt with students that were a little bit more advanced was they, um, they gave us more freedom to, I guess, explore challenging questions. In fact, I remember playing with some problems about matchsticks when I was in <laughs> elementary school. Those were the first exposure to problem solving. I didn't know that was math. Um, but yeah. at the end of the day, with this, with this math counts, I think what really sucked me in was the, was the fact that there were a lot of people who were working, to, uh, working 
together actually as part of a team um, of course it was competitive but inside our room it was extremely supportive um, and also by having these hard questions that were not a straightforward application of some principle it actually became a fun and creative challenge um, i actually saw math as something much more than quick speed and memorization and uh, instead something where you have to be creative to find a new solution so how do you well obviously just to answer my next question which was how you reflect on those experiences now it sounds like they inform a lot of your a lot of your mathematical development how about your ped pedagogical development the way you approach teaching Right. So actually, I should say that something that imprinted on me very heavily was that this coach in middle school did not necessarily tell us how to do everything. In fact, he was more of a moderator of a discussion uh, where he would be putting ideas forward, but he would actually encourage all of us to try to explain how we did it. In fact, to this day, that's how I teach my Putnam class at Carnegie Mellon. I'll just put a question on the board and say, um, Go. Class, any ideas? Uh, anyone want to propose an idea? And very importantly, there's no bad idea. In fact, even if your idea is wrong, I might still try to extract as much right as I can from it. And this is some pedagogical method that I, I guess I got exposed to as early as middle school, because that is exactly how he ran these practices. We were all trying to inquire at the same time about a question, and every single person in the room was supposed to say what they thought. Oh, so taking a wrong idea and turning it into eventually a right idea, that's great training for running a company, which I bet you know that now. Uh, <laughs> so did you do a lot of teaching when you, so you had a couple of younger siblings who were pretty good at these contests as well. Did you do a lot of teaching even then? Oh, I had a couple of siblings who were better than I was in these competitions. <laughs> that's the accurate way to put this. So um, did I do a lot of teaching back then? Well, I'll say maybe occasionally we might talk about something and maybe I'll explain something, but um, I mean, my brother was the Math Counts national champion. He didn't really need to learn from me. But, but what I should say is that I, I, did, uh, I, did, enjoy, um, I did enjoy talking uh, about math to, to other students. And that was partly driven by the fact that this coach of mine in middle school was a volunteer. And so when I was in ninth grade, I decided to also volunteer and help as an assistant coach, in some sense returning the favor, because that's actually how I got into math. And so ever since ninth grade, I've actually been helping out in some form as some kind of a teacher to somebody who's maybe two years younger, three years younger, eventually 10 years younger. Oh, that's, that's cool. I mean, so your outreach career is almost as long as your math career. Uh, <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. Perhaps. So, but, but you did have some other interests in high school. And I know that because I betrayed the human race playing your alien attack Four game yesterday. <laughs> so uh, coding clearly could have been a future for you. Um, I suspect you you were pretty good at that as well. And you clearly have some entrepreneurial instincts. So why did you stick with math as you headed into college rather than going into coding and targeting Silicon Valley? Ah, so I should say throughout my entire life, you're right. I've been very fascinated by computers. I think it was stemmed from a very, very early kid reaction to this saying, in my life, I have to do what people tell me. But when I program this computer, it does what <laughs> I tell it to do, and I'm powerful. And as a fifth grader, this, this felt amazing. You could tell this machine to do stuff, and it would do it for you, and it wouldn't even do it wrong. So I, I'll say for, for my whole life, I've really enjoyed doing that sort of stuff. Now, actually, when I was in high school, my goal wasn't to make the International Math Olympiad team. 
because I wasn't good enough. I mean, if you fast forward, if you look at the year that I was there, um, we placed 10th. Uh, that was the second worst performance in the entire history of the United States. Well, so, you made up for that later, but we'll get to that. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. But, but, um, but what, what I mean to say is that I actually wasn't thinking that that was my main thing. I was actually thinking that computer science would actually be maybe how I would try to contribute to the world. I actually participated in the computing Olympiads as well. Mm -hmm. um, it's just that back then, you even if you did qualify for the national training camps, you had to choose one or the other. So I actually had to decline the, the, the programming Olympiad one. Honestly, that was just because that year I had qualified for the IMO team. And back then, we were notified as early as May. And oh. so I said, well, then that's where I'm going. <laughs> uh, now, um, now, when I went to college, I will say I was always very intrigued by computer science. Um, I didn't major in computer science formally at Caltech actually because Caltech did not have computer science as a major when I was there. Uh, wow. Caltech is, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I actually, I, I remember going there and thinking, you know, let's see if I can major in computer science. And if you flipped through the paper handbook, which it was at the time, yeah. um, when you got to see the computer science said, this is not a major, but if you'd like to study it, you can major in general engineering and uh, specialize in computer science, but your degree will be in engineering. That's and amazing. This is what, this is, you're, 10 years younger than I am, then this is amazing to me that Caltech yeah. didn't have a computer science major at that time. I mean, that was 2000. I should say today, I understand that half of Caltech students are computer science majors. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> it's, the world has changed. But, yeah. but, but I'll say that because of that, I decided to then take advantage of what were Caltech's strongest suits, which were the physical sciences, the uh, like physics. I, I, I thought that was fascinating. And I also then chose to go into mathematics just to build up that foundation of thinking. And I think Really, back then, I decided that I would have an official major, which would be the easiest major to graduate with. That's actually what I decided. And the unofficial stuff would be everything I did outside of the actual classroom. Okay. Uh, and that actually included doing a lot of messing around with computers. It included various things on student government. Um, I got married the day before I graduated. There, there were a lot of, <laughs> lot of things that were going on. Yeah. And the idea is that there's a lot of learning that goes beyond what is printed on the sheet of paper where you graduate. Yeah, that's absolutely true. My wife was by far the most important thing I got out of college. So <laughs> we, we share that as well. Absolutely. I'd, I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about Caltech. I've had a lot of students go to Caltech over the years, and the variance of their experiences is much higher than what I see at most schools. Like there are some for which it's this wonderful, amazing, illuminating experience and others for which it is it is not. And you obviously had a wonderful time there. And I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about what are the markers that suggest Caltech would be a good fit for a student or a bad fit. And then when a student goes there, how how can they make it be a good fit? Great. So I should say I was 100% happy with my experience there. Yeah. I loved it. Um, in fact, I even go back to visit every year for the alumni reunion, and I actually go back even more frequently than that. Mm -hmm. um, but I should say, first of all, I want to be careful because I actually do work at another university. <laughs> I, I, I'm very careful about saying why one university is better or worse than another. Yeah. So instead of, of directly answering that question, yeah. uh, what, what I'm going to say is that uh, I think that a place like Caltech is relatively small. Uh, there are therefore both benefits and disadvantages to that. If you have a small place where there are a lot more faculty, well, the student to faculty ratio is uh, lower. And if you take the initiative, you can actually get a lot of faculty attention. And I had the opportunity to do research projects with a number of different professors in computer science and applied mathematics. And uh, I, I would say that that gave a very strong uh, 
very strong educational research background. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, I also bucked trends. Uh, I'll say that at Caltech, um, it was quite common for many people to try to take five classes a semester. In fact, if you didn't, I think that was considered low. Mm -hmm. um, many people tried to even take six classes a semester. I took four. And you my lazy four... bum. Yeah, exactly. I told you I chose the major that was actually pre. I, I did the calculation which major had the fewest graduating requirements, so that I could do as much extracurricular learning as I could. Yeah. Um, but then, what I mean by this is actually, I think people at the beginning may have thought this is indeed a lazy bum. And in fact, if you looked at my four classes, uh, actually I took five, but the fifth class was called Student Design Fitness. You just had to exercise for three hours a week, and you got a third of a class. Excellent. That was important for graduating, by the way, yeah. uh, because as I said, I, I found this minimum. But um, <laughs> of my four classes, I mean, I think there would be two math. One would be a science, because to me, mm -hmm. Caltech was wonderful at science. Yeah. And then one of the classes would be Chinese, which some people may say, you, well, that should be trivial. But my parents are Singaporean. I was speaking mostly English at home, and I just uh. was fascinated by the idea. But this is my four classes. Um, there were people who were taking four math classes and two more hard things. But my attitude was, if you control your schedule completely, then you can own those classes. I mean, uh, my goal was actually not just to take a class and get an A. My goal was to take a class and like completely thoroughly understand everything there. I would grab a book that I might even grab a textbook used at another university. And I'd actually go through all of the problems in the chapter. Uh, they weren't assigned. Nobody assigns all the problems. But I was like, well, if you can do all the questions in the book, you understand the subject. And at that point, you can only take two math classes at a time if you have that intention. Yeah. Yeah. I learned that technique from my dad, actually. He was huh. the one who had certain attitudes to learning. And his attitude was, you can learn from a book. You just read it yeah. and do every single problem. And, and also find the books that the people at the other universities, like MIT or whatever, are using. Make sure you do all the problems in all the books, and then you'll know the subject. <laughs> That's interesting. That, that mirrors a lot of my experience. I, I went to Princeton, and I would look for courses where they would give me the whole syllabus at the beginning of the year, because my strategy, which was somewhat similar to yours, was to try to work through the whole syllabus in the first three or four weeks. I wouldn't understand <laughs> oh, it. I wouldn't understand the last half of it. And then I'd work through it again in the middle, right, third, right. middle three or four weeks, and you get to the end of the course, and everybody's like, how'd you understand that so fast, Richard? You know, when they're showing us the hard stuff at the end of the course, and I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, <laughs> I've been thinking about this for 10 weeks. It's, <laughs> this is not new to me anymore. Um, and course selection, that was also a key strategy as well. I'd like to, so you went to Princeton as well for grad school, and I went there as an undergrad, and it seemed to me that Princeton might kind of be a nicer place to be as an undergrad than as a grad student. It's, it's felt more focused on the undergrads, and for grad students, the, the, the impression I got was as a grad student going there, maybe it would be better to be already married, which you were, so maybe you, <laughs> you did that strategy right. Was my impression just completely off? Um, I will say I actually also absolutely loved Princeton. Mm -hmm. um, and I will say I also did notice that it looked like a fabulous place for undergraduates. Uh, the university very clearly has a very strong emphasis on undergraduates. In that sense, it's very nice because it's a top research university yeah. where you have really first-rate people doing all sorts of uh, groundbreaking things in mathematics, science, and humanities, and everything. Uh, and at the same time, the undergraduate experience is still remembered. Um, and so I'll say that that's fantastic. Of course, I was a PhD student, so I was not a beneficiary to that. However, um, I was indeed already married, so we had kids. We had a kid. In fact, oh, my, my oldest daughter, yeah, my oldest daughter, was born in Princeton. Uh, oh wow! It was 
it was it was actually by the way i think that princeton is a fabulous place to raise kids uh, you were looking <laughs> at it from the uh, from the attitude of an undergraduate student yes. but from the attitude of a parent it's this peaceful quiet pristine place with green grassy fields yeah. very very safe um and yeah. also you're surrounded by other grad students who happen to be married and some of them have kids uh it was actually a very cohesive environment among the grad students who had kids because we were all living in the same apartment complexes all of us were like these 20 something people who were trying to figure out what to do with kids because they don't <laughs> come with a manual so, <laughs> so so that was fabulous oh, that is great well while you were there while you were at grad school you explored a couple positive possible alternative realities for you first you explored the financial world i missed you at de shaw by about a decade you interned there twice, so it sounds like you at least liked the first experience enough to try it again. Why didn't you stay with it? Ah, okay. So, yes, indeed. I actually was always very interested also in finance. Actually, I was fortunate enough to have a scholarship for Caltech, and because of that, I had a little bit of extra spending money, and because I like to multiply numbers... I decided that compound compounding would be a good thing, so I decided to try investing in the stock market. Now, that was the year 2002. Um, okay. I was very fortunate. Basically, around that time, the more stupid you were, the more money you made. <laughs> and I was pretty stupid. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, it gave me this false sense of confidence that maybe I'm pretty good at this stuff. Uh, in any case, I, I, I followed all of this investing. And when I, was, uh, when I was doing a master's degree in England, I somehow chose to take a class in mathematical finance. Uh, okay. But there were many classes to choose from. And I thought it sounded interesting. I had no idea what it meant. And as I took the class, I learned that a lot of the concepts that I had learned in analysis and in probability actually had direct applications um, in finance. And in fact, if you understood that fundamental mathematics, you could really make a difference in the financial world. Yeah. So then uh, I decided to apply to, uh, to, to internships in the financial sector. Uh, actually, the only one that I got was D.E. Shaw, uh, primarily because I think D.E. Shaw was interested in this uh, Olympiad or competition type background. Yeah. I thought it was a lot of fun when I was there because it was doing something I did for fun anyway, which was try to figure out patterns in the stock market. And I will also say my recollection of that place is that somehow the people there also thought this was an interesting sport. So what I mean is that there was a the senior guy, one of the senior guys in my office, in my room, uh, would show up in the morning. And the first thing he would do is read the news and start to make speculations on how that might affect uh, the various motions in prices. And he would then check whether his hypothesis was correct. Yeah. It was like he was speaking out loud, doing all of these yeah. hypothesis testing and just playing with the, with the economics. So I'll say I, I liked the atmosphere. I thought they were doing something which I was doing for fun anyway. But the reason I kept going back to academia was actually related to something else from Princeton, who was the PhD advisor that I worked with. His name is Benny Sudikov. Okay. And this particular person is the reason I went to Princeton as a grad student. Uh, I met him when I was visiting graduate school, and okay. he struck me as a brilliant person who really cared about his students. And so I decided, well, I'll, I'll start working with you. And he put a lot of time into me. And so I felt when I was at D.E. Shaw, because every time you know, there's an opportunity, sometimes they say, why don't you just quit grad school and just join us now? Yeah. And uh, my answer was, well, I have this person who has invested so much time in me. I at least want to give grad school a chance because mm -hmm. somebody has put all of this energy into me. And so I, I gave grad school a chance. I worked at DUSHA twice. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, that's because my PhD advisor moved from Princeton to UCLA halfway through my degree. Okay. And 
I actually had a practical need to uh, solve a financial problem because if you're suddenly moving and you're not a student at UCLA, you have a totally different expense structure. Okay. Uh, and Princeton, I had this all this subsidized student housing and other subsidized things. So, so then I, I worked at the Shaw second summer. Also, I had a lot of fun. I will say that second summer was in the middle of my PhD. And at that point, I actually felt this is like a vacation compared to uh, working for this PhD advisor I have. This Benny Sudikov, <laughs> he was wow. something. So Benny Sudikov would meet with us like six days a week, uh, wow. multiple times a day, uh, and we would just keep running. Now, because I had the good experience at DE Shaw, though, I had sort of made this decision to myself that, you know, DE Shaw and financial sector is an interesting place that matches my hobbies anyway. Uh, however, there is one thing I miss, which is teaching. Um, it's not that you can't teach interns, but there's something really interesting to me about teaching large numbers of people who will then go out and impact the world in some way. And so I had made this conclusion that if some university that um, I guess had a reputation for really strong students who might be interested in working hard and might not complain if I make the class twice as hard, um, if they give me an offer, I'll go. And Carnegie Mellon happened to to get interested at some point, and uh -huh. so that was that was the end of the decision. Yeah, that's interesting. It took me it took me a little bit. Well, I guess it wasn't longer because I didn't do the PhD thing, but it took me longer to be right. like I would rather be teaching. Um, <laughs> so you so you headed off, became a math professor. I hear from a lot of people in the math circle community that they struggle to get young professors involved in outreach efforts because young faculty are heavily incentivized to focus more on research. That obviously has not been true for you. Um, is that a function of you, of Carnegie Mellon, or of both? Now, it's clearly a function of you to some extent, but... Yeah, I would say that uh, Carnegie Mellon also has a big hand in this, in the sense that um, at the university where we have, uh, where we're at Carnegie Mellon, um, the tenure probability, so the probability that you get a permanent job is significantly higher than 50%. So what I should say is that, uh, again, for any of the listeners who are wondering what this is, there's this notion of tenure. Uh, and tenure means that after a certain point, you have a permanent job at that university. And now um, at some of the other universities, that probability is 50%. At some places, it's 10%. And when it's higher, then you have an opportunity to even think about what you might do to grow the institution. So what I'll say is I've noticed a certain pattern at Carnegie Mellon that uh, not only myself, but there will be quite a few other junior faculty who know that they have a pretty good chance of staying. And mm -hmm. so instead of it being something where we see each other as competitors or something where maybe we right. don't want to invest too much of our time in building an institution, if that's going to cost us the opportunity to stay in the institution, then what ends up happening is that from the beginning, we start building. The other part is that uh, I managed to find a way to combine all of this outreach with the regular work I was doing. So. Uh, Research is, of course, very important, mm -hmm. but I was of the opinion that some of the best people to help you at research might be some of these math contest students. Yeah. And so uh, around that time, I became, uh, I think, the deputy leader of the U.S. International Math Olympiad team. And I got the crazy idea of involving some of the undergrads who are helping to coach the students mm -hmm. and involving them in research projects. So actually, in the summer, I would go to the Math Olympiad program, would teach Math Olympiad classes, and I'd also, on the side, supervise undergraduate research mini projects with some of these undergrads who are helping to teach. And they're that really, really amazing students that you're working with there, they're like phenomenal. some of the best in yeah. the world. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and that actually made some research papers. Uh, uh -huh. So what I'm trying to say is I loved the education and the 
teaching piece. But I wanted to find a way that I could merge that with everything else so that it would actually be uh, complementary. And also in research, especially as a junior faculty, one thing that you have to do is you have to go to many places to give research seminars. In fact, it's quite common that you go to lots of other universities, you go to lots of other conferences. Um, what I would do is if I was in a city, I would start just reaching out to the local um, math circle or mm -hmm. a local high school and say, you know, I happen to be here for a conference. The conference isn't all day. I actually have this time over here. If you're interested, instead of just, you know, hanging out, I'll, I'm happy to come over and talk to you guys. And so I actually found a way to interlace these two at the same time. So not not trying to make you have to do even more work than you already do, but I would like to encourage our listeners to try to keep track of Poe's schedule. I've seen him give a few of these talks, including how to cheat at rolling dice. Oh, that one. <laughs> <laughs> and they're absolutely fantastic. So if you can get him to come come speak to your group, you're, you're really going to enjoy that. Um, so... We're going to walk through some of these concurrent careers that you put together. But my first question is, when you meet someone at a party and they ask you what you do for a living, what do you say and what do you think? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, that's an interesting question. So I can tell you what I say nowadays. Nowadays, I say, I do math and I bring math to the world in okay. some complicated ways. I mean, the, the complicated ways doesn't need to be part of this. But what, what I'm trying to say is, you know, if I, if I meet someone at a party, I, I might say, I do math and I bring math to the world. And this comes in a number of different ways. Some okay. ways are coming up with original new mathematics. That's okay. the research side. Yeah. But other ways are trying to show how math is interesting to wider and wider audiences. And other things might be trying to help audiences learn math. But ultimately, I just try to bring math to the world. Um, the reason I don't name any one particular thing I do yeah. is because at this point, unfortunately, there are just too many different ones. And ultimately, if I'm trying to see what they all are united around, they are actually all united around this, bringing math to the world. So would, how would you order these things? Um, outreach versus discovering new mathematics? I find it very hard to order them yeah. in the sense that I think that they all inform each other. Mm -hmm. So um, the discovering new mathematics, I feel, helps me to bring original material when I do outreach. I actually have a preference to, if possible, talk about things that I discovered. Um, that might be something which comes from being in the math research community, where you write a research paper only about new stuff, which is stuff that you discovered. And so I'm the most proud if I can, not most proud, most proud is the wrong word, but I'm the most enthusiastic if I'm in an audience sharing something that I discovered. Yeah. Um, it's sort of like being a singer-songwriter. It's like if you wrote the song, you might feel it more strongly. Yeah. Uh, so I would say that definitely informs that direction. But also, I have found that uh, occasionally I've gotten some research idea, you know, if I, if I have been revisiting some old thing. Uh, because oftentimes, if you give a talk, you're, I call it old thing because that's like the kind of mathematics that's the most approachable. And you might rethink the world in some interesting way. So at the end of the day, what I like to say is I like to find ways to engage a lot of people, but I also like to come up with new things or new observations. So what's the next talk that you're going to give based on a problem you're working on now? Wow. Okay. So, I mean, I'm not sure how big of a talk this one might end up being, but uh, there's, a, there's a, a thing I threw out onto Facebook recently uh, about binary, um, about uh, an observation that Again, it depends on the audience because I talked to lots of different yeah. ages. But I had made this observation that if the human race operated in binary, we could shave about five years off of elementary school math. 
uh, because I can teach you the addition table. It's um, zero plus zero equals zero. Uh, zero plus one is one. We're done. Okay. Uh, one plus one. Sorry. One plus one is one zero. Uh, multiplication table. Uh, zero times zero. Yeah. yeah you understand. Yeah. Uh, and and then now with um, with multiplication, it's just the standard same way it works. Yeah. And long division. It's even easier. You don't have to guess. You see, the hard part about long division is you need to guess that zero to nine that you throw up on top. With binary long division, you just ask, is that remainder less or more or greater than or equal to what I'm dividing by? And you write zero or one. Yeah. That's it. That's we could cute. cover it all in a week. <laughs> so that's why computers are better than we are at math. Yeah, and that might also be why dolphins are so smart. Because <laughs> the only reason we use base 10 is with 10 fingers. Those dolphins, they're operating in binary that's, from the get-go. Or beautiful. octopi. People say octopi are smart. That's base 8. That's base <laughs> I had a friend of mine make kind of the obser opposite observation when we were talking about base 60. And he just said, ah, imagine that multiplication that table. That multiplication <laughs> table would be awful. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, again, this is not necessarily like a, a talk for yeah. making people learn a math concept, but this is just a way of maybe seeing math in a different light. If we're yeah. talking about an actual math concept, I have different topics that I would yeah. use. So what yeah. are you researching right now that's eventually, what problem are you going to actually solve? Oh, wow. Or hope okay. to solve. Maybe that's the way I should put it. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are lots of different kinds of questions that one can think about. Mm -hmm. um, I should say that some of them are more approachable. Some of them are like these long shots. In some sense, um, I'll, I'll share one of these like famous hard problems. This is not mm -hmm. something that I claim that I'll be able to solve, but I think it's a guiding principle for a lot of people who are working in this area of mathematics called combinatorics. And this, this problem is very easy to describe. That's also why I'm choosing it. Um, it turns out that if you take any six people at a party, there's always going to be some three of them who have all pairwise met. Or you'll be able to find some three of them for which zero of the pairwise meetings have happened. Okay. Uh, in graph theory, this means that if I have uh, six nodes that I've drawn and some pairs of nodes are connected with relationships, uh, joined with relationships, this means there's either a triangle, meaning three uh, nodes which are all joined, or there are three nodes which have zero things directly joining them. Mm -hmm. uh, this is something called the Ramsey number. Now, that's nice for six people. They're always like, three that are either all uh, already know each other or three that don't. It turns out that for if you want larger substructures, you just need more people. For example, if you had about 20 people, um, actually, you don't need 20, less will work, but the 20 is a nice round number. If you have 20 people, you can always find four people who all already pairwise know each other. That's four choose two, which is six relationships. Or you'll be able to find four people for whom zero of them pairwise know each other. A question, of course, is do you need 20? Like, what's the minimum that you need? And mathematicians might try to find out for any number. Like, what if I want five people who all know each other or five people all who don't? Uh, what is the number, minimum number of people you need to guarantee that this exists? It's an extremely famous problem to say, if I want this in general, if there are K people, if I want K people who know each other or K who don't, is there some, uh, what is the minimum number of people you need to guarantee this? Uh, this is a question I'm fascinated by, and I definitely have dedicated quite a bit of time to thinking about this particular question. Um, why I say I'm fascinated by it is because that's actually the attraction, in my opinion, of math research or just any kind of research. It's just that there's some truth which you don't know, which you're chasing after. I also tell this problem, this is not a problem that I recommend anyone to try to think about. It is somehow famous and hard. However, in the process of thinking about these questions, sometimes you decide to think about other things which are more approachable. Yeah. And so that would be actually how you eventually balance your time. Okay, cool. I was gonna ask, 
starting off with your day job of being a professor, how much of your time is this, this or that, but it sounds like you really view all of your work as kind of a blended one thing. Um, and it sounds really nice that the university basically gives you the cover to do that. Like you, yep. you have, yep. you're, you're free to do that. Is that an uncommon thing? I should say at Carnegie Mellon, uh, I, I, I can't speak for other universities, mm -hmm. but Carnegie Mellon has a lot of people who do a lot of different things. Um, I, I will say that an, added, an impression I got soon after coming here was that what Carnegie Mellon hopes that its professors will do is something with major impact. And now that opens a certain broad-mindedness to what does it mean to have major impact? So for example, we are not only evaluated on a few dimensions to ask, you know, how many papers did you publish? Um, you know, what are your course evaluations as the decimals out of five? You know, like instead of this sort of stuff, it seems that it's a little bit more flexible. And um, the most important question is impact. Now, of course, that's maybe easiest to achieve through the standard means. I mean, clearly, if you have, um, you know, X number of research papers published in great journals, that's a clear way of saying that you have impact. Um, it's just that in this university, there have been quite a few people who have made names for themselves by finding other ways to have enormous impact. Right. And uh, because of that tradition, I was actually inspired to follow my own passions and to see if these things would work. And you knew this coming in the door. Um, I'll say actually coming in the door, the only thing I knew was that there were a lot of really strong students and there were some really good faculty members. Okay. And within a few months of being at Carnegie Mellon, I discovered that the way it operated was a bit like an entrepreneurial institution in itself. So it's worth mentioning that Carnegie Mellon by the US News and World Reports is in the 20s. Mm -hmm. Uh, I happen to think that may be inaccurate, and maybe other people <laughs> may think that's uh, inaccurate. Too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but what I mean to say by this is that if you are in that kind of a position, uh, it is actually maybe to the advantage of the university to try to think if there are ways to maybe do something a little bit unorthodox, but for which you might get a huge gain. And I should say, in some sense, that's a bit of the story of my life. I like to choose things that are a bit unorthodox to do, primarily because I feel like if you find the right way to do them, you actually change the world instead of doing something incremental. Well, I'd love to hear a university going this route to moving up those rate rankings instead of changing their matriculation rates or the other games that universities can play. So you didn't, you didn't know coming in that you'd have this sort of freedom, but you found out pretty quickly then? Yes, uh, I found out pretty quickly from other colleagues who were similarly minded. Okay, so how do you how do you juggle all your interests in your work? Like, for example, what did you do yesterday? That's a really good question. I have a hard time answering what I did last hour. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> no, no. But well, I'll say one of the key components is a bicycle. Once you have a bicycle, uh, your speed multiplies. <laughs> This is actually very important. Uh, so, so, I mean, I actually do have multiple offices also, mm -hmm. and even on Carnegie Mellon's campus, if I'm moving around, if you can go on a bicycle, your speed is maybe about, you know, maybe it's a good 5x faster than walking. <laughs> I, I, I also, before I had that bicycle, uh, I was probably one of the only people at the university who ran everywhere. That explains why you're so thin. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, okay, so these, these are maybe yeah. on the surface. But uh, to, to generally answer the question of what, uh, what, in, what is involved in the day, it primarily revolves around whatever is the, is the, is the challenge that, that's going on right now. 
I mean, for example, this morning, uh, I actually was meeting with somebody from the dean's office, uh, Carnegie Mellon, the way the universities are structured, the dean is uh, overseeing a number of departments. And there was an, a person from the dean's office who was interested in finding out what sort of cross-cutting new programs and new initiatives they could create that might inter blend these different disciplines to do something new and great. So uh, that, was, that was one of my morning items. And then, Sounds of course, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I will actually say um, I find it quite interesting to be operating in a place where people are trying to think of new things to do like this. That was fun. Um, but then, of course, um, I, I also had, I was also out here at XP. I was doing, I was actually doing the kind of math that most people think math is, which is called updating the finances. Uh, <laughs> I, I will say whenever I update the financials, I am so happy that in math, no matter how many numbers you add and subtract, the answer is always the same. Actually, every time I work through a big financial check of um, how much did I spend on this? No, you no, never. <laughs> <laughs> Two different people sitting right next to each other doing the same numbers. No, you're not even going to be close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the interesting thing, the interesting thing to me is really that, you know, Math is just so correct on long ranges. I mean, that's that's the amazing thing to me. Um, because if you do anything else in the world, like trying to build a house, if you build one side and build the other side and build like all the way to the top, they somehow are off by a few millimeters or inches or worse. Yeah. But these numbers aren't. Anyway, so that was part of my day. Um, I also... Um, I also was, of course, teaching at Carnegie Mellon University. Mm -hmm. um, I actually teach the Putnam class here. Mm -hmm. And so we had a whole bunch of uh, actually quite a few of your, for your, your, your community members, Art of yeah. Problem Solving community members in this room. Uh, we were doing number theory, right? Okay. And then now here I am back here talking to you, having a fun <laughs> conversation. Cool. So how do you say no to things or do you just never say no? Oh, unfortunately, I do actually have to say no. Um, I will say... Uh, I love saying yes to things, mm -hmm. primarily because uh, it usually makes someone happy. I mean, you yeah. use something that they, that, they would, that they would like to do, and I'd like to stretch myself as far to do that as I can. Uh, recently, I found that there have been too many requests to actually answer. So in the end, nowadays, what I try to do is I try to choose what I do based on what might have the biggest impact. But yeah. at the same time, I'm also not only thinking of impact in terms of how many people did you touch, right? Because uh, I'll say actually for a long time, a lot of my outreach was focused among maybe um, communities that might be more involved in these math, uh, in some sense, making the people who already are good at math better at math. Yeah. Uh, and nowadays, I try to think about how I could possibly try to spread this sort of interest as far and wide as possible. So I basically think I prioritize based on impact, and that impact takes into account opportunities. Okay, so let's let's dive into both of those. Let's first do that first group. So go ahead and go into time. Uh, order that you just mentioned. We'll start with the your lead your role leading the U.S. International Math Olympiad team. So you've been involved with the American Mathematics competitions for a very long time, working with the IMO team in a variety of capacities, including obviously as a competitor yourself. With all that said, were there any surprises when you took over as the team leader? Yeah, we we won. <laughs> um, what I should say is that um, I, I really want to say that credit is to the amazing people on the team. Um, yeah. That to me was a huge surprise because actually when I was taking the job, I had a phone call with Michael Pearson, the executive director of the Mathematical Association of America, during which I, I explained that I was much more interested in trying to develop these students to be as successful long term as possible. Mm -hmm. And I said, if you put me in charge, um, we probably will do worse than we have done before because we are explicitly changing our goal 
I, sorry, I shouldn't say changing because I don't want to speak for any previous coaches, right. but I'm explicitly setting a goal, which is I want these students to be as successful as possible long, long down the road. Uh, my motivation for this is because I was in their shoes in the past, and I remember that experience, and I also somehow think of them all as the younger version of myself, and I, I'd like to help as much as I can. And so, fortunately, uh, the, president, the executive director of the Mathematical Association of America thought this was a good idea. In fact, he said this is exactly their mentality as well. Right. And so we decided to proceed in this way. Um, and so I'll say it's been wonderful surprise that the students have been doing so well. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, that would be that would be the biggest surprise. Well, I know some of those kids. I maybe wasn't as surprised, <laughs> <laughs> yes. but I guess you know them pretty well as well. Yes. But you've also made the program more international. Can you elaborate on that? Like, what inspired you to do that, and how it affected the program? Right. So I should say that something that made me interested in mathematics from the very beginning was actually a sense of community. Um, because, of course, I like challenge. Of course, I thought it was interesting to do these harder, more creative problems. But again, going back to that atmosphere of the about 10 middle school kids in a room, um, you were building a group of friends. And so uh, throughout my entire math career, I've always been uh, attracted to community. Now, I remember my experience going to the International Math Olympiad as something that was fairly stressful because I was afraid I was going to make uh, a very poor performance. Uh, and also I remember it as being a very interesting experience where there were people from all around the world speaking different languages with different cultures, different approaches to math and even life. And I remember thinking that was a very interesting experience. So when I had the opportunity to direct how this program ran, I thought it was it would be very interesting to give more than six Americans the opportunity to meet these people from all around the world. Mm -hmm. Maybe we can bring them here. And so uh, I started fundraising to try to see if we could find a way uh, to support uh, scholarships effectively to invite these non-US students to participate. I will say at the time, uh, some people may have thought I was wasting money uh, because this is using money that we could have used to train the US students. Um, but my, my attitude was that if you did this, Actually, it goes two ways. I mean, everyone starts to learn, everyone starts to develop, and also you build this international community. So that was the original motivation. I just simply remembered that was what I loved perhaps the most about the IMO. Let's let as many people experience this as they can. Uh, today, it has evolved into a life of its own in the sense that actually at the IMO this year, there was a group photo taken of people at the IMO who previously had attended the Math Olympiad program. It was quite a big group photo. Wow. That's pretty yeah. cool. It's, so it's an international community. How many different countries now are attending MOP or have attended MOP in the last few years? Yeah, it's about 10. Uh, okay. we, we have That's about great. 10 countries, each of which send two students. Um, we simply look down the results of the International Math Olympiad mm -hmm. and we, we tell the team leader, you, if you would like, you have two spots and we'll pay for everything. Wow. And team leaders, I, I'm guessing they're, have any not been very open to this and excited oh. about it? I think I think everyone appreciates yeah. it. Uh, there are just some practicalities in certain yeah. countries when the when the school year runs differently, it doesn't quite match up. So not everyone says yes, but I think I, I get the sense that I mean, it's not a bad thing to be invited. So uh, I, I think it's it's generally appreciated, but not always taken. So uh, I think my last question on contests is: How would you like to see them evolve in ways that might? I guess this kind of bridges both of your worlds. So the question is, how could contests evolve 
to bring in a wider circle of people. So one of my complaints about math contests in general, though I love them, like they were formative, deeply formative for me, um, is right now in the United States, they're still, I don't want to say they're the only, but they're one of the main ways and they kind of crowd out anything else that kids can start self-identifying as math kids. Now math circles have come along and some stuff on the internet has come along, but how could this community or just education more broadly evolve to let more kids identify as being these sorts of kids, meaning lovers of mathematics and self-defining as good at it without winning a Math Counts trophy or an IMO medal or going to MOP? Right, this is a really interesting question. So um, I think if I was to deconstruct what are people's motivations for deciding whether they want to do some subject, sometimes this comes from whether they think they have a chance. And um, this is not a criticism of how math contests are run because I don't like to just give unfounded criticism without giving a solution. But I'll say that right now, if you aren't already pretty good, you can be, uh, you, you, you can find it very hard to rank and then to move onward. Mm-hmm. So I think what I'm referring to is, this is actually something that we think about here actually at XP because of the fact that we actually have built something where we're trying to encourage people to do problems. And actually for the entire summer, our user experience designers have been thinking about this problem of how to let everyone feel progress, even if they may have started two years later than other people. See, what I'm trying to say is that if you try to break into the math count scene when you're in seventh grade and you haven't ever done anything like this before, um, certainly the video challenge is something you can enter, which is great. But the main competition might be challenging to qualify for state. Now, I actually would encourage everyone to do it anyway, because I think that by doing these competitions, you learn how to do mathematics. And in fact, the team that I coach, my local middle school team, I don't care how much experience you have. This is great. And we're just going to make it fun. And we're going to do the competition competition, like the real competition. We're just not going to care so much about the results. However, what video games have done really well is that they have more ranks than I could ever imagine. In fact, I can't even keep them straight. And they have all these like different colored um, medals and tiers and stars. What I'm trying to say is that video games have optimized themselves to give you a little kick of um, encouragement yep. constantly and, to make you feel like you can do it. And parents hate them for it, but yes, yes it's yes, true. Because it's, it's as addictive as a drug. You always yes. have this easy way to get the next the next high. Now, I'm not out here to criticize competitions, but I'll say that something that we've learned from doing our, our research is that if you can find a way to actually have enough levels so that you sort of can still feel like you're moving, that's a great thing. In some sense, Math Counts tries to do that and does a good job by having the levels starting from the school competition and then the chapter competition and so on. Um, Effectively, what I'm talking about here is almost an intra-school. The idea is that it is healthy to always be able to bring some of the most uh, enthusiastic people to the top, but the base level needs to be open enough. So how did you start making this pivot from your focus? I mean, when you, when you came into Carnegie Mellon, you were clearly already involved with the IMO team. Um, and you probably already had some broader interests, but how did you first conceptualize how you were going to move outside that band? Was XP the first thing you thought of, or, or was it something else that evolved into XP? The timeline of all of this is actually right around when I became the national coach of the U.S. International Math Olympiad team. Um, 
actually, I, I remember when they ultimately chose me to do this. I, I remember feeling very, very happy. I was like, this is, this is great. Um, this is like returning to my roots and trying to help the next generation in that, in that zone. And it's also kind of fun to be able to do this. And then the next day, I remember thinking, what else should I do with this? I mean, if you, if you are somehow now responsible for United States, you know, previously I was responsible for Carnegie Mellon University's math. Uh, math team ranking, which is fun. It's, it's good. But suddenly it's United States. United States is pretty big. Um, and I started <laughs> to think, I, I should probably, I would find it very interesting to try to work across a broader population, because I'm actually now representing United States of America, not a subset of United States of America. Mm -hmm. So I started thinking about what maybe I could do. And at the beginning, I, I didn't see many solutions, because um, I didn't have money, I didn't have governmental connections. I couldn't push curricula. Right. Right. I, I could go to places and give math talks to anyone who wanted to listen to me, that kind right. of thing. Um, but then I remembered back to the roots of, uh, as I said, I'd done computer stuff all, all, yeah. all uh, for a long time. And the thing that I always like to say about computers is that a computer that costs like $100 can do a billion math calculations a second. Yeah. That's as many math calculations a second as the entire world working together at the same time, because the world is 7 billion people. It's the same billion. And um, I mean, if we want to go into the weeds, the calculations <laughs> the computers are doing are like 20 digit number addition, yeah. which usually takes at least seven seconds. So, so <laughs> <I> just, <laughs> this is the art of problem solving podcast. So I'll make sure to match. <laughs> but the idea is like a hundred dollar computer is as powerful as the whole world working at the same time. And so that's when I got the idea of, is there some way to try to use these computers mm -hmm. to scale out a platform for learning math to as broad an audience as possible? And very fortunately, right at that time, um, another AOPS community member named Ray Lee uh, had oh. just joined Carnegie Mellon. He was a former US IMO team silver medalist. He also had a similar background to me. And the two of us decided this sounded interesting, and we, we dove in. Um, Ray Lee, at this point, has moved on. He's a mm -hmm. PhD student at Stanford uh, in computer science, doing very well. Um, and as for me, I already had um, advanced that much into my career that I recognized that this is something I really wanted to do. So I stuck on with it, and we've continued driving. So what was the original vision for XP? Actually, that's an interesting question. Because when we started, we actually started by writing down the whole set of ideas that we might do before writing a single line of code. In fact, we built a document that was probably about 30 pages long of here are different things we can do, here are different ways we can do it. We didn't follow everything to this day. We're not following it to the letter, but there's a lot in there that is still guiding what we're doing. And the reason we did all of this is because I guess both of us come from math competitions and math Olympiads in particular. We like proofs. It's hard to write a proof in business because there's no such thing, uh, but that's actually like a business plan. Yeah. I would actually say that uh, you should never do business if you have no plan. And a plan is a probabilistic quote unquote proof, right? So we actually had put this out. And indeed, some of the original ideas are still what we are thinking of doing, which was uh, to create a platform where anyone could contribute math and science lessons, but where the math and science lessons are already organized by topic. Mm -hmm. And then you could build algorithms to operate on top of that to try to serve problems to people. Um, and that's, that's actually what we're doing. Uh, and of course, the, the, late, the late stage, we're actually thinking at some point of adding a way for you to learn from other people, like human-to-human, peer-to-peer communication. And these sorts of things um, from the early days were part of the plan. Um, 
and yeah, we're still moving forward towards it. Of course, it's not 100% accurate uh, to what we're doing now, but it has stayed quite faithful. Right. I, yeah, it'll be interesting as you add in more of that sort of peer-to-peer interaction. That's obviously been a huge part of our, of our problem solving. People talk about, oh, what we've taught the kids. I'm like, ah, no, no, no. We just got them connected with each other, and then we just get out of the way. That's the job. Um, so what have the surprises been, uh, both positive and negative? Like, were things that you thought, oh, this is going to work, and no, or eh, we'll try it. This is never going to work, and it, and it takes off. Yeah, I'd say that. I think one of the pleasant surprises <clears throat> was validating a hypothesis that we had. So maybe it was, we, we sort of thought this would happen, but that people actually wanted to write stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, actually, I, I should say the reason why we were so confident that this would happen is because we knew there was this website called Art of Problem Solving. <laughs> and so it, in some sense, the experiment's been done before. Right? <laughs> so, so that helps. But I, I'd say maybe other surprises are, um, it's actually quite hard to expand into wider and wider communities. And by this, what I mean is, if you, if you see something where, where many people are using a platform, you might think, oh, wow, they, they can grow. But in some sense, what you're doing is you're growing out to the perimeter of a certain network of people. Yep. And as a graph theorist, this is something I probably should have seen from the get-go, that you know, the, the network, social network of people is not homogeneous. And so in some sense, you, you fill out to what you can quickly. And then the next thing's challenging. Um, for us, surprise and challenge means um, great, challenge yeah. accepted. We want to do this. That's the whole part of what we're trying to do. And so I'd say at that point, the, the surprise, uh, the, the work becomes how to actually keep reaching out to more and more people, because that happens to be the mission of what this particular right. uh, website is trying to do. So uh, what do you think are the benefits and limitations of the crowdsourcing approach? as particularly in pertaining to this, which you just talked about. You have a lot of crowdsourced content, but a lot of your biggest successes are a, a bit more centrally produced. By centrally, yeah. I mean maybe by you, but. <laughs> oh, oh, oh I, I will say there's a lot of credit given to my team. Yeah. <laughs> they all help a lot. But, yeah, I, uh, I yeah. can say the same. So I'd say, um, I think that what makes Art of Problem Solving, for example, so successful is the fact that it has such a powerful crowd uh, a powerfully engaged crowd, which is creating content. And I actually I still believe that what makes a website great is actually through its platform and its community. So for us, we're still looking at that as, as a long-term thing that we're reaching towards. Uh, because you see, the benefit to that is that the crowd is more creative than any one of us can be. And the crowd also knows more than you and I do about what 12-year-olds or maybe 15 year olds think is interesting. Right. Uh, actually, at this point, I have a 12 year old. I guess yeah, I Yeah, you, you, you know more than I do about that now. <laughs> I guess I can ask her. But, but what I'm trying to say is that um, uh, the crowd has a certain wisdom uh, that spans more boundaries, that uh, goes beyond more boundaries than any one person could have. Yeah. So I'll say that is why we fundamentally believe the crowd should be involved. Now, limitations um, this is something that we learned at the beginning also, which is that crowdsourcing works if there's a crowd. If there isn't a crowd, there's not much sourcing. Uh, but at the same time, if there isn't anything to attract your crowd, then there's no crowd. I, I just yeah. described chicken and egg. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so actually, one thing that we do about this is we actually have a team of people who helps us to create a certain baseline yeah. of what we want the world to be able to, to reach. And this is, uh, these, are, these are students from uh, Carnegie Mellon at the right. University of Pittsburgh who have a great sense of humor and love sharing knowledge. And so that's actually what we, what we have learned, uh, somehow a combination between ha keeping the crowd 
ability for, for the future massive growth and also helping to guide the crowd. So ultimately, I think that somehow guided crowdsourcing is probably the best. Perhaps that's why you guys have some moderators as well. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the reasons. <laughs> um, how many people do you have there now? Uh, right now, we have about nine people who are working okay. full time, and okay. we usually have about five to ten interns who are coming in. Okay, and the interns—they're usually students, full-time yes. students that are. Yes, yes, yes. So, what has been the biggest win so far at XP in terms of getting engagement? Like, which place that you you put levers in a lot of different places? Which one gave you the most? Yeah, the one that we discovered, actually by accident recently, was that Google search is really powerful. Uh -huh. And so by, by, by this, what I mean is that actually all of our content that is created um, is openly licensed by the Creative Commons share alike license. This was a decision we made from the beginning that we wanted an open platform. Um, at that point, we also from the beginning uh, made, the, made the decision that we wanted anyone to be able to link to our content, anyone to be able to go to a page, no login, nothing, nothing. And uh, that's partly because I think we, our community is also above the age of 13, so we had no such issues that we had to worry about for privacy. And so uh, what we then decided to do is let everyone at it. And Google found us. Um, and so actually, to this day, probably about two thirds of our traffic comes from people searching for something like, I don't know, how to ways to prove that a quadrilateral is a rhombus, you know, like not every quadrilateral, not every quadrilateral is a rhombus, but if you want to prove one that is, what can you do? That happens to be one of our searches, which actually was a number one search result at some point, maybe a month ago. And now this is all stuff that happened sort of despite us not prioritizing Google. We, we somehow were working on trying to build a user interface that would be fun to use. And we discovered that all this traffic was coming from Google. So I'll actually say that um, we discovered that the biggest lever was basically making everything open. Because once you make everything open, once you have, we have 25,000 lessons and problems. Again, that's nothing compared to what the amount of content is on Art of Problem Solving. I don't know about but, that, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but, uh, but that, that somehow when Google finds this, we happen yeah. to have these search terms that are square in high school math and science, which, by the way, are getting tons of searches every day mm -hmm. as high school students are doing their homework. Because we're going square into the, into the curriculum. So that's the, that's the biggest lever. Um, it was not expected, but at this point, it's turned into the main strategy going forward. So it's become deliberate at this point. At this point, yeah. it's completely deliberate yeah. because uh, we, we actually discovered that uh, we had many things on our website that were very bad for search engines. I mean, we weren't trying to optimize yeah. for them. We were just optimizing for someone going in and clicking around. And there were things that we had chosen to do, which made Google confused. Um, of course, what that means is if you fix those, then suddenly yeah. many more people can discover it. Interesting. So uh, what's the, what kind of people are you looking for to add to the team? Some of my listeners might want to join it. <laughs> ah, I, I'd say actually the most, uh, the, the, the most critical person we're trying to hire right now is actually someone on marketing and growth. Mm -hmm. Because we're trying to reach out. And again, something very important here is that we want to be careful that as we do reaching, as we do outreach, this actually does go to broad populations. So somehow right. one easy way to get growth numbers is to find an affinity group and just fill the whole thing up. But what we're really trying to do here is we're trying to reach everyone. And so right. we are trying to find the key person uh, to, to lead all of the marketing and growth. Here. Interesting. Yeah. Speaking of someone who's found an affinity group and, uh, is curious about how to find other groups as well. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll be watching closely. Um, That's great. So what's your job? What do you do for XB? 
what what do you do a day to day week to week i i like to describe my role the role of a ceo yeah. as the guy who knows how to do everything poorly yeah um, yeah i'm good at that so um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the job description <laughs> The key word is everything, uh, in the yeah. sense that sometimes it's taking out the trash, uh, sometimes it's like mailing T-shirts, yeah. uh, sometimes it's doing the financials as I was just doing. Yeah. It's like, and sometimes it's actually coming up with mass content, yeah. and sometimes it's being in a video. It's just like yeah. everything. But the, I, I guess what I feel my job is is to make sure that everything gets done. And the reason why I have to be able to do everything poorly is just yeah. because then we'll make sure nothing ever slips. You're at least the second, possibly the third CEO I've talked to in like four or five conversations that's mentioned taking out the trash. So for all those out there who want to run companies, yeah, get used to the trash bag. Um, I, I do Absolutely. installing I do installing water coolers. That's my gig. Awesome. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about kind of outreach in general. So, I mean, obviously a lot of your work is focused in XP, but you do a lot of stuff outside XP as well. What do you feel like has worked best in engaging people who are not already in the fold? So I think that being human and being clearly human helps. So I usually will be introduced as some kind of math guy, yeah. right? But I try to win over people based on my humanity. The idea is that we all have a common language that we mm -hmm. can speak. Uh, and that common language is actually not any particular language. It's body language. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm referring to by this is I try to bring people in to the idea that this might be fun. And I also choose topics I, uh, that have some mathematical insight in them, but maybe also have some relevance to your, your life. Uh, you saw this thing about how to roll dice. Uh, that was one of the talks I've given. Other talks I've given, uh, I, I've had this thing where it's actually quite surprising. If you show two oranges that differ in volume by a factor of two, they don't look like it. No. Because actually it's only like about a 25% increase in radius that will give you a 100% increase in volume because five over four cubed, right. five fourths cubed is 125 over 64. 125 is almost 128. But I mean, when you bring these sorts of things, you, you, you let people see how mathematics actually might overlap with their life. But at the same time, I don't try to hit people over the head with this idea. In fact, the first goal is just to show, you know, you, you can do math. Math can help you in some things. And math, happy, normal, interesting person. The, these are the first, uh, yeah. first things that come across. Um, yeah, but I, I would actually say this, this humanity is a very important part. Because at the end of the day, if you think about who watches a TV show, who watches a game show, it's the host. And what's special about the host is the personality. Yeah. Uh, I mean, why are we listening to this podcast? Because you're the host, right? <laughs> <laughs> Similar principle. I'll ask all our listeners why they're listening to this podcast later, and we'll find out the truth of that. Oh. Um, so these ideas that you come up with, and I've, I've seen you give a number of them, do you sit and just try to think them up? Or do you have just in the back of your mind, whenever you find yourself doing mathematics on something, oh, I should see if this is something I could turn into a talk. Like, oh, like you yeah. pick up a couple oranges in the grocery store. I could see you doing that, right? Picking up in the grocery store and being like, oh, yeah, this is going to be good. <laughs> so I should say it's a combination of both. Um, one part that happened is that for about one year at XP, we were making an interesting set of problems every week. Mm -hmm. And there would be five problems ranging from one that is really for everyone 
uh, ranging to one that I can't solve. Like every week we have <laughs> something like that. And we'd go and ask our experts on the staff, like Victor Wang, if people know that name. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think he was a very prolific AOPS user. Absolutely. <laughs> but but basically, uh, we would we would have this set of questions, and the way we would do it is I have uh, I have a very diverse team here in my office mm -hmm. of people who have different backgrounds, and there's a particular person in here who has a background in uh, in, in poetry, um, and the idea is that between the two of us, we'd try to make all these things relatable. Somebody would come up with an, a theme for the week, and I'd just go and sit down for a few hours trying to see is there any math about this? And the surprising thing is if you just sit down and think about some topic like. Super Bowl, you'll find math. Uh, or if you think about some topic like, uh, I don't know, I don't want to only do sports, but we had things like about spring or about April Fool's Day. Like there, there are ways to come up with things if you just sit down and say, I'm looking for math in this. If you tell me find math in the world, I'll be kind of not quite sure where to start. Okay. But if you tell me this area and I just sit down for a few hours, you might find something. So was this training for improv? <laughs> oh my gosh. Actually, this is very related to improv. Um, I, I should say that came before. Uh, yeah. The improv that you're speaking about yeah. is, is I, actually, I'm not sure if I told you, maybe I had told you, I, I take these improv comedy classes mm -hmm. nowadays. Um, that's actually because that's also part of trying to relate to an audience. Um, as you relate to, uh, as you learn how to improvise, uh, improv comedy isn't just about trying to say funny things. It's simply trying to be able to react to anything that might happen. And as you do that, you also find yourself more creative with the English language, more able to think on your feet. And I'll say that in the end, I guess what we're doing is we're doing a combination of improv and math now when we're coming up when I'm coming up with these kinds of math topics, right? Because I have this kind of I, I spent a year thinking about stuff. So I've got some stuff in the back pocket. But also when I combine that with walking through a grocery store or coming across something which I find surprising. Basically, any time in my life I, I'm surprised by something, I try to think, is there a reason why this is true? And once you start thinking about reasons, oftentimes there's, there's some math inside. So when you're doing these improv things, is it obvious that you're the math person in the room? Or do people not even know? Ideally, they don't know. Yeah. I, I actually try to keep a low profile. So, so the idea is that uh, when I go to like an improv comedy class, my goal is to actually learn as much from other people as possible. Mm -hmm. And as much as possible, I'd rather that people don't put me into this bucket of, yeah. oh, this is what that person probably thinks about and what he probably is like. In fact, one of the beautiful things about acting is that you are anybody. Uh, and in fact, to do a good job of that, you actually ideally are not pigeonholed into any way. So when I go to these things, I try to say minimal about, I try to speak minimally about what I actually do in life. I'm just a guy who hopefully looks like any old college student uh, just playing in your, in your improv thing. It should be fine. Any old college student now. I don't know how many more years you're going to get away with that. Uh, it'll fall apart. <laughs> uh, your, your knees will tell you first. Um, yes, yes, yes. So have there been cases where you get a lot of engagement in one of these talks? but they're focusing on the wrong thing? Or do you just not even care as long as they're focusing? I would actually say that if you have gotten engagement, you already won. Yeah. And in, in, in fact, the way I structure the talks, I actually don't care what part you get engaged on because I, every, every piece is somehow relevant to some message. I mean, even if, you get, even if you latch onto this piece, which is about how it's okay to screw up, Actually, I'm completely happy if that's what you latch on to. That might be the most important thing you can teach them. So. <laughs> that, that, might be, that might be, yes. Yeah. Um, what's been most effective at convincing people that mathematics is a creative discipline? 
Like people have this image of mathematicians as not being creative. They could, I'm sure they could watch you in improv class and see, oh, wait, maybe there's something here. But to convince them that mathematics itself is an act of creation, if they're not already math, math people obviously understand this. But again, to get people in this outreach, to get people who are, you know, the nine-year-old who, I don't want to do math. It's just addition. It's not creative. I want to make something. I usually think this comes from having uh, people actually learn something that's new, uh, but to also understand it. Actually, here I'm coming, I'm going to the difference between knowledge and understanding. Sometimes people think that they learn by knowing things. And what does it mean to know something? It means that, well, I know it because it's true. Um, but that's very different from actually having the sense of understanding. And so what I usually try to do is I try to come up with something which I think might be surprising, like maybe the oranges or maybe the rolling of dice, um, and then surprise you with it, but also to leave, let you leave understanding why it was true. And maybe to say at the end, this is actually what math is about. Um, and at that point, it starts so that people see that there's the value and also there's this wonderful feeling you get. I think that's universal of actually, I get it. Yeah, the, the aha moment. I mean, that's that's why you teach, right? Yeah, that's absolutely. That's, that is the reward. Um, so I'll finish with a, a small handful of questions here. One is, how do you get so much done? Just in general, like, is it you set a plan from day to day and you follow it? You don't sleep. You like, <laughs> like how how do you manage your time? How do you manage yeah. such high productivity? I think the number one thing is that the things that I'm doing, I really want to do. Uh, they're, they're actually what I'll do for fun. Some people have asked, what do you do when you're not working? Um, well, actually, I'm not working. This is, yeah. this is fun. I like talking to you. Uh, you know, like, <laughs> and, and I like thinking of all of these things all the time. So yeah. somehow I, I really like doing what I do. And also, there's a bit of me that feels that it's important. Um, I sort of feel like I should do this because I happen to have gotten myself into a position where I can. And if I don't, who will? It's not like other people are not doing important things. Everyone's doing important things. But this particular angle that I'm running, I don't see anyone else doing this particular angle. And it's, I, I know from experience, it's hard to get the momentum to run this angle. So it's also, it's also my duty to do it. Um, so somehow it's that, that, that drives you. Then the other piece is how do you actually pull it off once you really decide this is what you yeah. want to do? Um, I actually don't recommend this like not sleeping thing. I, I think that that's, <laughs> no uh, that's, uh, that's used maybe a bit too much in college by, by, by some students. Um, I, instead, I, I think it's very important to optimize your efficiency. So I'll actually often be thinking, maybe if I'm walking from place to place, what order should I do things in? Like the world is not commutative. Like here we are again talking about math, but <laughs> nothing in the world is commutative. And sometimes if you do project A before project B, project B happens to go faster. And actually, I will actually spend a lot of time thinking, you know, what time should I do various things? Um, the time I delete emails is sometimes when I'm riding the bus back home because I have no keyboard, but it only takes a swipe, right? Uh, and, and, and I want to delete the emails so that later on when I go and look at something, I don't have to go and delete the emails then. But it's this whole thought process of, um, the whole process of using some of the spare time to strategize for the optimal use of the time, which you're more inspired to do because you somehow feel like this is really worth doing. What's spare time? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a really good question. So in some sense, uh, the, the, the the travel time. <laughs> that is travel time. That's do, right. Do you ever have doubts? You mean of whether things will work out? Uh, or anything, whether things will work out, whether it's important, whether you're doing enough. Ah, uh, so I think it's always good to doubt whether something is important. 
So, I mean, there's a lot of questioning. In fact, I'll say something that I do a lot of times in my life is to, I would say doubt is the, maybe a, a bit loaded of a word because it seems to indicate that there's Negative. a problem. Yeah. But there's a lot of questioning that always has to happen whenever you're in charge of a strategy. And uh, you have to be able to ask, willing to ask yourself those hard questions. I do that all the time, actually. Uh, and that's also why the things that I do change as I realize mm -hmm. that, oh, maybe, maybe it wasn't right to throw all of my energy on this like um, top 0.01% of students with all of my time. Right. And maybe I'll, I'll want to spread the time in some other ways. Uh, this is my personal decision. But but at the end of the day, uh, yes, definitely those come. Doubts of whether things are accomplishable. That's a little bit different. Um, I like to finish things. So there's a certain thing where like somehow if I haven't succeeded, I or if, I, if, I, if I'm not succeeding, I usually think, well, maybe I just haven't succeeded yet. Uh, what I mean by that is it's actually very hard to convince me to actually give up on something. I will actually go and pull all sorts of, pull out all, all the stops to try to make yeah. the thing happen. Um, and that's, I guess, that's that's where I am. So so basically okay. there are some things which I haven't done as well, maybe, uh, but at the same time, uh, I will I'll somehow be like, okay, let's fight that fight again, we'll come back. <laughs> There'll be a comeback, <laughs> this sort of thing. <laughs> uh, so what would you suggest to students who want to follow in your footsteps, not so much by doing exactly the thing that you're doing, but by pursuing multiple concurrent, possibly related careers? Yeah, I, I want to say I was very lucky that I had this position at Carnegie Mellon University, which is one of the rare places uh, which, which, which I, I, I guess where, where such a thing might work. Um, I think what I would say is to not... Uh, not give up too easily. So what I mean is that when, when I started a lot of these things, it's not like it was always smooth sailing. In fact, actually, when you start out as the new person or when you try to talk to some funder or, or when, when, you, when you're starting out with anything and you haven't demonstrated anything, it's actually quite hard to convince people to believe you. And in fact, oftentimes people say there's no way that's going to work. Uh, I think you have to stick with it. What I'm referring to is that uh, if I had listened to people early on telling me that these ideas I'm trying to do are actually crazy and not possible. If I listened to those, I wouldn't have done any of them. At the same time, I don't mean to say to blindly just yeah. follow your gut and not listen to people. Actually, when I listen to people's feedback, I try to think, why do you think so? And if the reason is because no one's ever done it before because of yes. the past reasons, yeah. if the world has changed and if I see there's some new angle, I'll say, well, you know, your reason doesn't quite apply. And so I think the, the, the common thread is to uh, you know, have some very strong passions about what you want to do, be a little bit stubborn, but at the same time, be, be very careful about how you listen to feedback and to take feedback when it, you should, and also to not take feedback when you shouldn't. You shouldn't. Yeah, that's excellent. So I'm going to close by giving you the floor. We'll put up links to XP, your homepage at Carnegie Mellon, so they can get their own uh, chance to to uh, disgrace humanity by not beating the aliens. But uh, <laughs> where should people go to hear more from you? Ah, so I should say that uh, I, I definitely do maintain a social media presence. And so you, you, you can find me on Twitter as Potion Low. Um, you can follow me on Facebook as also Potion Low. 
there's also a growing YouTube presence. Uh, if you if you search on YouTube for Toshan Love, uh, <laughs> you will find an increasing number of videos that may feature me or for which I may be featured in the credits as somebody who helped to ideate uh, parts of these videos. I would say that I also happen to travel around the country if I happen to be going into your city. Uh, actually, there's nothing I like more than meeting interesting people. And if you're listening to this podcast and I happen to be coming to your city at some point in the future, uh, feel free to come. I don't actually maintain a public list of where I go. However, I will often post on social media or inside your city. The local math circle may actually post something saying that you know I, I, I am coming there. Um, Apart from those things, uh, definitely the things that we're doing with XP, you will probably be also hearing more and more about, uh, whether it's from the XP social media or because maybe you searched for a math term and you accidentally found yourself on our site. Uh, these are generally the ways to follow me uh, these days. Excellent. Well, as always, this has been a wonderful conversation, Poe. My guest today has been Poe Shen Lo. Thank you very much. Thank you, Richard. Pleasure talking to you. Thanks for listening to Aftermath. You can find show notes for this and other episodes on our website at aops.com slash aftermath. We want more people to discover this podcast, so if you like this episode, please take a moment to share it with others you think will enjoy it. I'm Richard Russick. See you next time. Aftermath is brought to you by Art of Problem Solving, through which we've had the opportunity to work with hundreds of thousands of eager math students around the world. Our textbooks, online school, in-person learning centers, and various online resources empower students to develop the skills they'll need for success at top-tier universities and in internationally competitive careers. Come check us out at aops.com.